very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. In this episode of Understanding Users, I have the pleasure of chatting to another international guest, this time based in Australia. Tim Dixon tells me about his career journey into UX from academia via experimental psychology and social and economic research. He shares his views on the differences between strategic and tactical research approaches and the important distinctions to be drawn between UX designers and UX researchers. He also discusses an unexpected but beneficial consequence of COVID-19 in allowing his organisation to rethink some of its UX team structures. And we chat about UX as a discipline in Australia. Finally, he plays my three-card challenge to share his favourite UX tool, favourite technique, and a trend he sees or would like to see in the future. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the episode. So my guest today is Tim Dixon, uh, and Tim is talking to me all the way from Sydney, Australia, where he's lead UX researcher on the JIRA platform at Atlassian, which is a name that I'm sure many of you will be familiar with. Um, welcome to the show, Tim. Great to be chatting. Yeah, great to be chatting to you too, Mike. So tell me a little bit about uh, your role, Tim, and your sort of day-to-day work at Atlassian. Yeah, so as a lead researcher, um, I suppose day-to-day, I'm across quite a large area of like 29 teams. In fact, uh, I'm generally looking at the more strategic kind of projects that we have here. Um, Jira, I, I mean, if you're familiar with Jira, I guess quite a few people will be. Um, then it's we've got different um, teams on the product side, but then um, one particular department on the platform side as well. And the platform side is actually our more future focused, let's say, kind of like play. Um, I can't go into too many details on that, but um, some of this kind of strategic thinking is very much future visioning thoughts on what we might do um, in terms of that platform infrastructure that that Jira provides. Um, So where we've got like um, three different main uh, Jira products at the moment, Jira software, Jira service management, etc. They have quite a few researchers, etc. all working together and a bit more embedded. I'm I'm kind of the lone uh, researcher in this kind of like bigger space, more, um, you know, the more platform side of the things, which um, it has its pros and cons, has its uh, ups and downs, I suppose, um, as it is. Right. And and I'm just conscious, for those who don't know what Jira is, could you just give us a kind of one-sentence elevator pitch of, of what, what, what it is, that, what is the product? Yeah, sure. It's um, structured work management uh, for, um, I mean, our, our mission at Atlassian is to unleash the potential of every team. Um, and so Jira provides... I mean, the original Jira um, was Jira Software, which provides a way for um, software development teams to come together and plan um, individual items of work, often broken down into what we call issues or, or user stories, for example. Um, and these can be moved 
either in terms of on a on a board structure, a board view on the screen, um, or or put into a, a backlog, for example. Um, so you can run agile sprints. Uh, at the heart of it, it's got um, quite a, a strong kind of agile and um, scrum um, kind of facility built in. Right. And I'm conscious you said 29 teams just now, if I heard you correctly. Mm. Do you, uh, tell me how you work with those teams and, and kind of how regularly you work with them. Um, oh, so, yes, the um, 29 teams. I, um, I'm positioned kind of like working with the um, the leadership squad a bit more like so I'll liaise with the, that, that that level in order to decide what are the most kind of high impact things I can be doing um, and we, we engage with like a, a prioritization and um, planning process uh, that for me has led to working on these particular kind of strategic like I, I guess you call them upstream projects um, Whereas some of my colleagues and um, the way we're like looking more into the future for the research team in general is to be more embedded, like a, a, in a bit more of a kind of squad or that sort of next layer down um, or a few layers down, as it were, so that we can have more of an end-to-end delivery. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm not expecting to kind of like see this whole strategic piece right the way through because it's probably a five-year play. It doesn't right, make right. sense. But a, a lot of my colleagues will be working in a bit more of a kind of do some discovery work, take that into concept testing, take that through into usability testing, you know, and see it through. Right, right. So your users uh, of the product are essentially, I suppose, a global user base. Is that right? So I'm interested to know kind of how the, that lastly goes about conducting research with, with users externally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the um, it, it's very much a, a global uh, base. I think we've got 17 million monthly active users or something like that um, uh, at the moment. And um, yeah, it, it really is kind of like a, a whole mix of uh, you know different types. I, we t- we've traditionally started very much um, a team, a tech team, or a, a software development team has discovered Jira or heard by word of mouth. Um, and we we do very much pick up that kind of like word of mouth feel that then other people um, in a company might start to try and you know see the see the benefits. Um, that's led to kind of like the development of other other flavors of Jira, as I like to say. So we've got as well as Jira software, there's Jira service management, which is like a service desk. You can like make a service request when um, you've got like a problem, for example. Um, the interesting thing for me, uh, in contrast to that, though, is as a platform researcher, my we're, we're you know more focused on building the, the components and the capabilities that the product teams can build new Jira's with or build, can build Jira with. My actual customers are almost those internal folks who are making the Jira's. If you see what I mean, right, right. No, absolutely. So kind of at a, at a broader level then, Tim, how would you say, how can UX teams, product teams, ensure that they always have their users in mind when they're, when they're sort of creating, developing digital services or products? And by users, I mean both internal and external. Um, always having, um, for me, it comes back to um, ensuring we are doing the earliest point of research um, when we are looking at a strategy, like in, in my case, looking at strategy, which will then go through and maybe suggest a few different 
actual avenues of um, research uh, or um, a, a few different avenues of project, let's say, and they, each of those then should have their um, a, a substantial or um, a, a, a relevant amount of um, discovery work um, that really places and speaks to those um, potential research, um, sorry, potential participants, potential customers, um, etc. Um, and so that we can know from the very earliest point that we are including that that relevant customer base, um, even if it's before they um, before they've actually uh, developed that idea into um, into the next steps, I suppose. Um, a couple of things we do do are things like um, exposure hours and you know watch parties and in ensuring we we. we well, aiming to, I suppose, we aim to try and get that um, level of, you know, teams we work with getting, you know, six hours of exposure to customer like problems. Um, so I think two hours of um, exposure to customer problems every six weeks, that kind of thing. Um, uh, so that, so that you can keep keep that continuous kind of understanding going as well. I like the term watch party you just used. Is that tell me more about that? that that's not a term I've come across. Um, okay, so yeah, in terms of um, watch parties, after uh, completing some pieces of research, uh, we we may like depending on the researcher, depending on the team you work with, um, bring together a um, a selection of different um, clips of you know um, user problems again being in, uh, ensuring we um, remove um, personally identifying information all of these kind of things but uh, uh, having a watch party maybe it's a maybe it's half an hour or an hour of different kind of clips um, based around the core themes from the uh, the piece of research that kind of thing can be quite a powerful way to kind of share the stories quite quickly get people into the the, the moment of what we're learning uh, we, we don't want to necessarily and replace that whole synthesis with with these kind of things, but it gives a flavour of where we've got to um, at, at that point. Um, that's now that's interesting. So it's it's kind of like a playback session, but focused very much on sounds like video clips of of the research, which presumably are cu obviously curated by the researcher in advance of the session to kind of exactly. tease out the themes. Yeah, no, that's really nice. I like that term. I'm going to use that watch party. Um, Tell me a little bit, Tim, about COVID-19. Obviously, we've all been through this. And I think, you know, the news from, from watching the news in Australia from over here in Britain, uh, you guys were hit with it quite badly. How has that impacted the work you do or not? And I'm wondering kind of post-COVID, if we can even think that far with a with bated breath, how is that changing the way, is it changing back to how you used to work before or not? Uh, in terms of the way we work, uh there's some interesting things which haven't changed at all, I suppose. Uh, when I first started, it was, I had about four or five months before COVID really hit in. Um, and all of the research interviews, any any concept testing or anything that I had done up until that point had all been remote anyway. And it had all been speaking to people through Zoom, say, or whatever. Um, so that the side of doing the, the research itself um, didn't change. It was... All of the learning um, about both the, the organization, I was still quite fresh in Atlassian, it's a big organization, um, and then the, the actual way that Atlassian has addressed uh, our own working practices. Um, we, we had introduced Team Anywhere 
which is the principle that we no, we don't have to ever be expected to go into an office um, week by week um, for the vast majority of the company. Obviously, there's some roles which have an essential need, but um, the they kind of talk about once a quarter, um, I think, is an, is an expectation these days. Um, and that totally changes things. We've now got a developing research team in Melbourne, which wasn't an option. Everyone would have had to move to Sydney. Um, we've got great, you know, they've got some fab people there. And, you know, we, we're always looking for more people. Um, and it's, uh, it's, a really, it's a really cool way of actually sort of engaging but then, you know, the knock-on effect is it adds those extra layers of difficulty in terms of bringing people together and what that means when you do want to bring people together and how to make sure you're not just kind of doing your usual work um, that you could be doing at home if you're brought a, a group of people together intentionally. Um, so the other side of it is actually, yeah, we've... The company has introduced this idea of intentional gatherings and you know intentional togetherness when we do come together it should be thought through with some purpose with some intent mm, absolutely and a lot of those <laughs> discussions are ongoing obviously across the world mm. in terms of how to rethink team collaboration uh, and as you say there's nothing worse than being dragged across the country on a train or a bus or a plane or whatever to find that you're sitting there on zoom calls with <laughs> people who haven't joined you and you could have done it at home so uh, yeah, yeah the intentional gathering thing that, that that's great um, i will i'll just add on that of course and the, the very fact that we make um, collaboration tools means that we have very much kind of this real interest in some of the uh, like early on in um in the in the covid outbreak we had some really interesting research done and we actually ended up commissioning some very large scale research in five different countries to really understand what was happening the ways uh, we had some very early indicators of, as to how that kind of um impacted and we've got some great yeah it, the, the research was put out into like the public domain there's some great sort of you know um, worldwide news articles on it and stuff right great practicing what you preach yeah that's that's great yeah. um tell me so taking a step back tim tell me about tim dixon phd the career kind of how did you get to where you are now uh, and 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 why and kind of what what what, what twists and turns have you taken <laughs> to your current role oh, um, yeah I, I think most of the um the, the team that i work with are incredibly you know um talented folks and a lot of us have got um say phds and we've all got these very very different journeys and we all came um in this different way and yeah no exception um i studied at bristol university um in the uk and um experimental psychology as an undergrad um and followed by a phd in human factor psychology with applied vision um which is an interesting mix. I was looking at kind of usability testing of um, some, it was a project uh, sponsored by the Ministry of Defence. Um, so it was kind of combining uh, reaction times and um, uh, accuracy of detection and eye tracking studies and things like this, all in this uh, pretty cool big project. Uh, I went on to do a, um, a postdoc position for a year I realized at that point I should have left well academia wasn't for me I was feeling a bit too kind of enclosed by everything uh, there was a yeah there were points of struggle with the even getting the uh, PhD completed so 
it was it was a big kind of like time of okay realization um and at that point i moved to barcelona for two years um and i was teaching english total contrast total escape very much a a big different kind of like life and a big different way of kind of like you know doing things uh while doing that actually i did um i, I was teaching english in big companies because i didn't speak very good spanish so i actually ended up teaching in like the uh the water company in, in barcelona and uh i i met some uh consultants and i met some certain people that started me thinking about kind of what a kind of research consultancy kind of career could look like further down the line which kind of lay some sparks um anyway a few years uh, down the line i was back in bristol um and yeah i started then uh actually looking at what i could do as a career and my my phd was actually sort of like i finished in 2006 2007 ux as a term hadn't i didn't know it then and that's maybe part of bristol university being very academically focused um and for whatever reason i i was looking around at different um types of yeah um, consultancy work step by step i actually first of all worked for um for four and a half years for a, a company ERS uh, economic research services so I was a social and economic researcher which is a you know it's got so many commonalities with UX research particularly research but then uh, you know I was I was creating or helping to create uh, big surveys I was doing very very big pieces of qualitative research um workshops focus groups and things but then on the at the same time uh, i i started to learn you know started to realize there was there was this area of ux um i was going to meet ups and things like that in bristol and i started to develop the idea of like really focusing on the digital projects that i was um, in in that kind of social and economic remit uh, i i was you know we we were evaluating the impact of projects uh, so like you know you get some funding and you need to see if that funding was well spent and so the the more digital projects i could find uh, i would go, go for those and bit by bit uh, yeah established like myself as like the, that kind of like digital lead in that context um and then yeah um segwayed into working for nemensa and worked there for the um the the two and a half years i think before i got this uh, before i got this role at nemensa i was a, a ux consultant which then really you know it found uh, it made that foundation uh, complete i suppose tell me tim about um what you love about ux now you are where you are what what do you love about this world and conversely what what do you hate or what frustrates <laughs> you about about it um i i think it's um i think we have a lot of I mean I I see myself way more now as a UX researcher and I really appreciate that we have kind of we come through these circles where um UX as a discipline you know was probably coined like late 90s early 2000s and there was this sort of okay a, a UX designer did include doing that research did include doing all of the kind of significant things but now we can very much point to the fact that especially in you know large organizations when you're scaling UX and things like this 
there is this appetite to really um, really understand the, the pain that users go through and make that better. And we are we are perfectly situated to be able to do that in a in a robust kind of evidence based way, um, which is the you know for me that it's great to be able to do something. Um, I, I love that kind of science side of things. I've got colleagues who are anthropologists and they wouldn't say the same things exactly. But, you know, for me, it's getting that 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 real rigor and that kind of geeky um, side of like, um, you know, looking at the numbers as well as speaking to the people and triangulating data. It's, you know, all of these things are great for me. I, I, I love that. I love that. So what advice or tips would you give to somebody who wants to get into this world? Someone that came to you and said, Tim, I've heard about UX. I'm really interested in it. What, what would you yeah. tell them? I, um, I, I try and sort of support people whenever I can, actually, in terms of um, yeah, people who have been recommended recently at work and, um, and previously back in Bristol. Having made that shift from one area into UX myself, I think there are so many kind of like little steps that can be done to help um getting to know the kind of the what the scope of the work is about i think there's a lot of um it's it, back to your previous question about what's the the flip side the downside i think that there's a lot of um misrepresentation perhaps of what ux really is and you know it's put as this kind of like oh shiny new thing that um you know you can just jump into and be great at so making sure you do go to you know maybe on the one hand it's going to meetups and like learning and hearing what people talk about in in a kind of like uh, contemporary kind of context um i often recommend if people have started developing their UX skills, maybe they've done some kind of course or they may, maybe they've, they're learning something, um, see if there's a, for example, a charity or an organization that you might want to just offer or volunteer your time. Even find a, a charity website, which is kind of not, you know, charities often don't have exactly the best websites. And, um, yeah, just write out, suggest to them five, ten things that they could do. Do some research, actually, to, to do it, um, you know, to the full extent, and see where you could take that that offer with them. I, I will. I flag. I I do volunteer with a um, an organisation, UX for Change, um, and we um, it was founded by Sandra Gonzalez in the UK. Uh, awesome organisation, not for profit, and it, uh, we do this. Uh, you know, I'm leading the Sydney chapter at the moment um and we, we do do the same similar kind of thing we support people in the ux community and we support charities um with their their particular kind of digital kind of support needs as well that's fantastic so you bring your skill set all of you into yeah as you say charities mm -hmm. which perhaps have limited budgets to be able to kind of mm -hmm. improve them and yeah that, that, that's great um tell me a little bit about the Oz experience of UX. So, uh, you know, without trying to kind of differentiate countries unnecessarily, I'm interested to know, having worked in the UK for a number of years, now you're in Australia, to what extent have you seen any differences in the way kind of UX is, is approached or, or not, or, or, you know, commonalities? I think the tech sector in general here is maybe, you know, not necessarily UX per se, but the tech sector in general feels a, a, a 
few years behind in terms of like the latest things uh, you know you still come across a bunch of websites which are not responsive for example like you know on, on proportion or you, you you come across those kind of things so the, there's a kind of maturity level which is just maybe perhaps a bit different um coming from the the ux research side of things it, it's been interesting that we've been hiring um quite a lot recently and look, you know you look when you're looking for um ux researchers here you're not necessarily always going to find people who have ux research in their job title in australia it might be someone with some service design and some research or like the, there's different ways that we actually can um end up finding like the, the people that um yeah that are there that are of of the, the you know the caliber i suppose or the, the, the kind of people we're looking for so there's simple you know there's broad things like that i guess um in terms of the you know the the nuts and bolts there's a so i presented at uh, design research which is a conference um here run by ux australia um there's you know phenomenal people uh, involved in both of those organizations in both of those um you know both of those conferences that that really stood out that that's no you know that's no different i don't think I think it, you know the difference is the number of people you get kind of coming here and passing through to actually you know be able to give talks when COVID's not a thing and things like that are slightly different. You don't get um, maybe in London you get kind of like people from Europe kind of just turning up at a meetup, for example, or something like that, and you you get to learn or see a bit more kind of diverse voice kind of in you know in the community a bit more here you have to kind of reach out a bit further perhaps mm, that's fascinating and i guess perhaps it's also a function of a, a, a much smaller population i mean oz has mm. got what 16 million something like that compared to obviously um you know london and britain um mm. yeah that that's and, and you talked about uh, giving talks there and i noticed that uh, you know from from stalking you online that you've done a number of talks do you what kinds of things do you tend to talk about and how do you uh, how do you find the reception to those talks that you give? So I guess the the, the liking of giving talks, like, it always freaks me out beforehand. But having done a PhD, and you know, you you it's just bread and butter, and I, you know, I, I really enjoyed that side of travelling around for for that. So the talks. So when I moved into UX, um, and actually another thing I will say about, and um, if you're making a move from another kind of area into UX. I took some of my learnings from that social and economic research side. I started to think about what are the transferable kind of methods. Um, so there's this area of impact assessment that I, I, I was doing that I brought into a digital sphere. First of all, I got some support writing um, a, a UX Matters article um, it, from, from, from people at Nementa. Um, and then I, I started presenting like on it because it's a new idea in the ux community it's it's a very common thing to do in the social and economic community that you you know wherever you come from you might find that there's that thing that the ux community doesn't know about and that's that was kind of like this really cool learning for me um so i did yeah ux bristol like in uh, maybe only a few months after i started at nomensa which was really cool because it was a workshop based um kind of uh, conference you only had a, an hour for the workshop anyway, and that was really hands-on, getting groups to um, think through how they would 
plan out a um, what we call a logic model in that approach. Uh, yeah, like how you would plan out what impacts different things would make. Um, that that was like an area that I was like working on for quite a while, and that's what brought that engagement with UX for change. Um, the la- very last thing that I did before I left the UK was actually go to um, Euro IA conference um, with Sandra Gonzalez from uh, UX for Change, and we did a half day workshop, in fact, on on this uh, on this area um, as well, which was really really cool. And then since been being here, I haven't, you know, COVID hit, and I, it's only just been that I've um, started to be able to do some conferences and writing, and again, came up with something very very different um, for this. Uh, design research conference and it was a, it was a half hour it's quite quite a meaty piece of um, um, presentation and it was on UX philosophy um, bet oh, you wow. didn't know you <laughs> yeah so it's um, the title was bet you didn't know you're a UX philosopher um, and it's it stems from the fact that actually I, I before I did before I did uh, psychology I did a year of philosophy uh, right. at a at another university didn't connect connect with me um i i like a finite answer and philosophy always has another question to add um but i i realized i re- i did enjoy kind of philosophy of science and some of the underpinnings of where science came from so i did this whole you know i've got this whole big um conference presentation on the the origins of ux from from uh, philosophically the the underpinning of um where psychology came from and ideas like empiricism and radical empiricism and things like and pragmatism and then that all comes through to some of the uh, the big philosophical names that that maybe we can learn a bit more from in, in ux terms today fantastic well next time you're giving that talk let me know because i want to come along and listen to it, it sounds great <laughs> <laughs> I, I need um, to share the um, youtube sometime <laughs> oh yeah yes please Final question, and then we'll get on to the, the, the three-card challenge at the end. Right. Thinking ahead, Tim, where do you see your career going in the next few years? Um, I'm, where would you like it to go? Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at, and I, I would love to be able to think about by five years here, I'd say, um, being, I, I, I see now my, my movement towards like a, a research manager role um I w- i'd like to be able to support others and i feel like that's a really positive way and in fact the the amount of growth that we've seen at atlassian in the even since i joined the the whole team size has doubled and as soon as you do wow. that oh, yeah so it's like from around 40-ish to around 80-ish researchers you know in which is probably one of the biggest you know research teams i guess in australia at least so yeah it's cool but that adds that those extra kind of needs. You know, you can't have one manager managing sixteen or twenty kind of researchers, and it breaks it all down. And uh, I like these big strategic questions. And in fact, while we do, um, while managers here have that people management side, they also look at the kind of like those, those next level bigger strategic kind of like approaches as well. Yeah, I think that balance for me would be a really exciting uh, next step. Brilliant. We'll watch your uh, progress with with interest. <laughs> um, final thing, Tim. So 
three card challenge. I've done this with everybody. So we've got three cards here. On the back yeah. of each, I've written either tool, trend, or technique. So we've got mm -hmm. Jack of Spades, Queen of Diamonds, Ace of Hearts. I'm just going to hold them up so you can yeah. see them. Pick yeah. your first one. Um, I'll go with um, Jack of Spades. Cheers. Jack of Spades is uh, technique. So tell technique. me about a technique, uh, UX technique that you use or have used that you, you like or you encourage others to use. Perhaps it's your favorite. Perhaps it's your go-to. Tell me about that. I um, I mean, I'm really into two things. And proper proper mixed methods um, where we actually take some pieces of the, the qual and we see how to actually align them with some quant um, research. That's a very broad general uh, answer. But the other side of things that I really enjoy are those deep discovery pieces. And I know they're not always easy to deliver or get signed off. And so my um, what, what I've defined as discovery by stealth is perhaps my my one answer so discovery by stealth i define as being able to okay take a um take a brief which might be do some concept testing or do some usability testing and work in um how much of that time how much of an hour say can we spend doing that which is the request and maybe can we spend half an hour at the start actually doing the discovery work which was maybe maybe not kind of Maybe there wasn't time to do it in the in in the first instance. Maybe we will learn, and you know, in various roles, I've seen that people learn more in that first kind of like half hour where you're asking the really broad questions and you're exploring actually what that person is, does and who they who they you know involve in their kind of processes than that jumping into that second part. And yeah, so that discovery by stealth is probably my um, technique of choice. That's that's fascinating, isn't it? And I think I've I've worked in the UK government uh, research roles mm. for for a number of years now. And one of the things I always love about government work is that there is a distinct, as you know, I'm sure GDS service yeah. standard, yeah. and there's a distinct discovery phase. But as you say, often it's time and willingness and budget, more importantly, to get signed mm. off. I guess in the private sector that's challenging. But the yeah, discovery by stealth, you can still tease some of those kind of you know insights out. You just have to make it perhaps less obvious how you yeah. go about it fantastic right next two cards i'll go with ace of hearts ace of hearts is a tool a and tool. you're free to say jira if you want <laughs> <laughs> oh as much as you know um i love jira it's um in terms of day-to-day -day ux work actually i go to um, and i use in a lot of my pieces of research mural um, and it's a simple, a simple tool for um, getting people to ideate. I do a lot of co-creating of concepts, actually kind of like um, taking people through. Like one idea was uh, to put a kind of a dartboard on the on the mural and get um, all the different tools that the person uses around. And it's kind of like you put the most important tool that you use in the center and you, you spread them out in terms of their importance then get them to kind of link the connections that they see between those tools and it might be their own conceptual like uh, connections i love that kind of just building mental models in a very simple way in a simple tool most importantly where the permissions means that you will know that the person you send that link to in a zoom chat 
works. It works first time. And that, that for me, that's the one thing it has over other kind of very close rivals, which have, which look nicer and which, um, uh, you know, maybe do other things better. But like I know with Mural, where I am. That perennial doubt stroke nightmare of setting up yeah. a workshop using a tool and then half the participants can't access it at yeah. the beginning. I, I feel your pain. Great. So the last one, uh, that's the Queen of Diamonds, and that is a trend. And it may be, I know trend is a word that a lot of us kind of balk at, but it may be something you don't like, something you do like, yeah. but something you see in UX. No, that's bad. I do I, I do laugh at the kind of annual trends for 22 in UX exactly, kind yeah. of things. Absolutely. I think for me, um, what I've really liked to see growing is the the move towards um, uh, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and the work of um, organizations like Humanity Centered, and the way that the, this is really becoming forefront of a lot of the conversations that are being had. I know, you know, here I am, a, a, a white male in, um, you know, a very westernized country um, where we have a lot of privilege and there's a lot of uh, colonial, you know, impact that we we try to, you know, um, acknowledge and try to bring into our own understanding of the way we work. Um, but I, I really feel like, I, again, coming to your earlier question about what UX can do, we are in this position to include this broader systemic and these broader big questions, and it really moves me. And and even on top of that, the kind of the, the building of neurodiversity and understanding there, like in some, you know, in in a personal sense, that has also been quite impactful to me as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much again for your time, Tim. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. That was great. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Users podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share it more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Join me again next time when I'll be talking to Steve Bromley, author, speaker, and highly experienced games user researcher, about his own unique perspectives of planning and running games user research and how it differs significantly from many other types of UX research. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered. <laughs>